0: Uh, I want to give a plug for another book that I didn't write. Uh, If you have a team of people that you work with in your job, your ministry um, the way uh, the thing that you're passionate about our team at Lakeside uh, went through this book called High Impact Teams by Lance Witt Lance was the executive pastor of that little church called Saddleback Church in California when they went from about 17,000 to 25,000 and Lance now has no hair but anyway he, uh, he writes a lot about things that all of us care about and it really does help you with your personal development and who the people are you're pouring into because if you have a team around you you really want to encourage them you want to lead them well and so i would just encourage you in that we brought lance to speak to us uh, for two days, and it was just amazing, and and I'll just give you a little taste of one of the things he challenged uh, us about, and maybe you struggle with this, I was talking to Alan about it, that, you know, a lot of us as ministers, ministry-minded folks, you know, we just don't take time to rest in the Lord, to be still and know that He is the Lord. Now, we take days off, but do we really Sabbath? Do we really spend that time that God has commanded us to? So anyway... I really want to give a plug to that book because it's better than mine anyway. But uh, here's all I want to say about the book. I did bring a few copies uh, at Allen's request, if you would like one. They're $10 and and it's not for the anything more than the Forest Scholarship Fund for my six kids, but I'm just going to say this about writing a book. I had no desire to do it. I finished school in 1999, the last time I was in school. But a sweet lady in our church said, I will help you to do it because uh, if you have that desire, this is my encouragement to you. It is like going back to school because if you do have a book in you, and I think probably everyone in this room has at least one book in might, You might have two back there. But listen, if you have a book in you, you just have to be disciplined in your writing. You have to write on a regular basis. I would say a daily basis. You have to... uh, go back, if you're like me, I manuscript everything, but I don't always footnote everything, so I had to go back and feel like I was in school and footnote everything, had to get several friends to read through it, but Kindle and Amazon have made it basically a free enterprise for you to do this, and they have made it something that's pretty easy, again, I wasn't smart enough to figure it out, but a little sweet lady named Peggy helped me to figure it out. And you get your own little author page and everything. I think we have sold dozens of these books. I will tell you how powerful that is. So anyway. Sold beginnings. It really is based on a sermon series I did. So that's all my commercials for you. I kept struggling as Alan asked me to come, and I was going to preach maybe something from uh, one of my chapters here, but what I thought I would do since it is the Easter season, I thought I'd uh, just share some highlights from one of my favorite Easter sermons. I'm not preaching it this Sunday for you guys that are at Lakeside. I'm not preaching this one this Sunday, but i preach it a few times over the years because I do love, and you'll find that in this book, I do love the Old Testament to look at Jesus through the Old Testament might seem strange to some of you. You might say, well, hey, if you really want a picture of who Jesus is, you really have to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that is the best picture of Jesus we will ever get, reading through the Gospels. But I want to say this if you really want to understand Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then you have to start with the Old Testament, don't you? If you start with just the New Testament, it would be like opening a novel at the middle, and reading it from the middle on, and what's compelling about the Bible to me, and by the way, I just want to give a little, a short snapshot of my testimony. I did not grow up in the church. I'm from New Orleans. Everybody I knew in New Orleans was a pagan. I know that's not true, but everyone I knew was a pagan, so I just thought we were all pagans having fun at Mardi Gras. So uh, when my parents divorced as a teenager, I moved from New Orleans to a different country called Shreveport. (laughs)
1: <laughs> so we all got our
0: passports And I, as a teenager Started riding the school bus And, and I had the longest route you could take You know, walking through the To the snow uh, Walking to the school in snow and all that stuff But the Christian kids on that school bus Shared the gospel with me over and over and over And so The background that I had I had the most foul mouth As a teenager, I know it's hard for people to hear A pastor having that foul mouth But I just wanted to repel people away from me and dare people to care about me. And those kids were so persistent. And so on November the 8th, 1980, I trusted in Christ because a friend of mine, a teenager named David Peterson, grabbed me by the shirt in a church parking lot one day and just asked me if I was a Christian. And I honestly wanted, I really wanted to lie in that moment because we all want to be accepted, don't we? But I was afraid there'd be some kind of quiz afterwards. And so I decided to be honest in that moment. Isn't that what we all need in our, in our born-again experiences to be honest in that moment and say, and I said, David, I'm not. And he began to share that good news with me. And so I just want to share that piece of my testimony, because not all of you know that story. And so since November the 8th, 1980, that was the greatest decision I ever made. And I would never change it, never turn back. And what's compelling to me about the Bible is, is not that it's just a unique book, but, but it is the Word of God that we knew about Jesus many, many years before Jesus ever came. The first, the first prophecy is where? Genesis 3.15, right? We talk about that in my book, too. Why I seem to be promoting this thing. So I want to share with you a story, uh, a bizarre story, I would say, in the Old Testament. You might say, well, what does this have to do with Easter? Just hold with, just stay with me just for a little bit. Early on in the history of Israel, they spent 40 years wandering in the desert, right? And now they're moving into the promised land, but it's a time of great struggle. And they're up, up against this, their arch nemesis. And who was that? The Philistines, right? They go into battle, and, and the Israelites are routed. I mean, they're beaten like the Cowboys get beaten. That's how bad. I do that in my church all the time. I get a lot of booze. I get, so they get so beaten. They go back and they ask, Why didn't God give us the victory? Why didn't God show up? And then all of a sudden, somebody gets this great idea. They say, The next time we need to take our secret weapon with us into battle. Does anybody know what the secret weapon was? The ark of the what? Ark of the Covenant, exactly. Now, for those of you whose knowledge of the Ark of the Covenant is from Indiana Jones and Raiders <laughs> of the Lost Ark, let me just expand that knowledge a little bit. The Ark of the Covenant was a sacred piece of furniture. It was shaped like a box. And on the top was the mercy what? See? Which is the place that all the sacrifices were laid. And inside the box there were three very sacred items. One was a jar of manna. And it was a reminder of what God had done for them in the wilderness when he fed them with manna. By the way, do you know what the literal definition of manna is? What is it? it? There you go. The next thing, there were the tablets on which God had written the Ten Commandments. And the third thing was Aaron's walking stick. This rod that was dead, this dead piece of wood, actually budded and produced fruit. So they thought if they take this into battle, there's no way. That God would let the enemy capture. And so this is our guarantee. They thought we're going to win. So they go into battle with the Philistines. And guess what happens? They lose again. And they lose worse than the first time. They lose seven times as many soldiers this time. And the ark is captured. So in their minds the very presence of God has been stolen from them. Now God's going to do for them they couldn't do for themselves. Do you hear that phrase? Can you apply that to your own life right now? God can do for you what you can't do for yourself. The Philistines take the ark to the city of Ashdod. This is where the Philistines have their own temple and their own little G-God. And their God's name is Dagon. Dagon was represented as half man and half fish. So he was the original merman, okay? Uh Thanks for laughing. They set the ark in the temple of Dagon next to our subservient to Dagon to show their victory. Do you get that? So they put the ark next to Dagon. So it looked like Dagon was their god over Yahweh. So they they all come into the temple. They're going to celebrate this. Well, when they get there and they turn the lights on in the temple... Thanks for getting that. When they come back the next morning, something bizarre happens. I'm reading from 1 Samuel 5. When the people of Ashdod came in early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So you know what that looks like, right? What does it look like? It looks like Dagon is worshiping mm-hmm. Yahweh. So the priests, like the men did with Humpty Dumpty, they tried to set him back up, dust them off, And rest assured, they secured him well. They had the best duct tape in ancient Israel. So that night, they celebrate again. And when they leave, Dagon's thinking, oh no, here we go again. Well, you guessed it, the next morning, he's laying prostrate. I always have to think about that word, don't you? He's laying prostrate before Yahweh. And this time, his head and his hands are broken off. So all that's left of Dagon is a stump. And they can't put him back together or sit him back up. The building and grounds team is in trouble this time, right? But, well, we don't know exactly what happened, but we know that it's a three-day story. That the first day it's a dark day because it looks like the God of Israel is defeated and the glory is gone. In fact, when the ark is captured, the priest Eli, he dies. And guess what else? His two sons die. His daughter-in-law, while in childbirth, she dies too. But before she dies, she says, name my son Ichabod. You know what Ichabod means? Kabod is a great Old Testament word. It means glory. But if you put the letter I in front of it, it means it's gone. So Ichabod literally means the glory of God is gone. So you realize what she's saying, right? She's saying, I've lost all my hope. And the sooner my son recognizes it, the better it will be. So just call him Ichabod. So again, to summarize the story, on the first day, heaven is silent. There's no hope. There's no glory. No one can understand why. Maybe you've been in that situation in your life. The second day is filled with mystery and anxiety and not knowing what will happen. But then comes the third day. And on the third day, the story takes a 180-degree turn. The idol is overturned. The time of captivity is over. It's a time of hope. And God is a God. And this is the whole theme of my message. God is the God of the third day. And what I'm telling you is this, and I'm not a numerologist, which a numerologist tries to assign very specific meanings to numbers in Scripture, but there is a significance to numbers, and what you discover is that there's this threefold pattern that we see over and over and over in in Scripture. And not just in this story. This is a message that God God keeps repeating again. Now, for time's sake, I'm only going to name a few, but I could name dozens. In Genesis, Abraham was told to offer his son Isaac on his way to to Mount Moriah in Genesis 22. It says on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. You know what what else happened on the third day? He sees that God provided a what? A ram. Exactly. When Joseph was in prison, he had an interpretation of a dream for a cupbearer. It says in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore your job. In Esther, she is a harem girl, and her people are, people are threatened. She has to go before the king, and this is what she says. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink. For how many days? Three days. How many days was John in the belly of the great fish? Three days. So why does God keep doing this over and over and over? Because... As Martin Luther used to say, all of the Old Testament is a signpost to Jesus, isn't it? And so, my next point in my notes here is a the title of a famous sermon that maybe you've heard. If you haven't heard it, I would love for you to listen to it on YouTube one day. It's called "It's Friday, but Sunday's Coming." That's the old great black preacher S. M. Lockridge. I can't do it justice. But it's a great sermon that our God is the God of the third day because the third day is when God shows up. But he wouldn't be coming in a box. He'd be coming in a man. We're all familiar with John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the father. And so if you know anything about that word from John 1, the word dwelt is the exact same word as the word tabernacle. And tabernacle simply means tent. It was the place where they kept the Ark of the Covenant. It's the place where the presence of God in the Old Testament was seen by the people. And so it said, we beheld his glory. And there's that great Hebrew word again, the kabod. And you hear the echoes from that little Old Testament story. And just like the Ark was God's symbol of his presence on the earth... Jesus now becomes God's presence in us when we believe in him. He is the ark of God. So I want to go back to the items in the ark. Do you remember the items? He is. Jesus is the manna from heaven, the bread of what? Life. He is the living covenant of God. He rose from the grave in the same way that a dead piece of wood, like Aaron's rod miraculously budded and produced fruit. So just like in that story, the ark is captured by the enemy and they lashed him with a whip and pierced his side with a sword and they hung him on a cross and they laid him in the tomb, but that was the first day, right? His followers were crushed. They had seen the glory of God among them and now the glory is gone. They must have declared Ichabod. The second day was a dark day because Pontius Pilate posted guards by the tomb, and I'm I'm sure Pilate thought, Well, I guess that's the end of that. But the Bible teaches us that this is what Jesus came to do. He came to do for you and for me what we couldn't do on our own. Do, do you really think about that? What 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 He is doing for you as a believer that you can't do on your own? Overcoming three things the power of Satan, sin, and what? Death. The power of Satan, sin, and death. The third day is when the prisoners get set free and and God's people enter the promised land when Dagon comes tumbling down and God comes home to his people. The third day is when a dead carpenter comes back to life. God is the God of a third day. So, So what I want to share with you in this last point before I'm done is that God wins, but what? What if he set it up in a way that God didn't always win? Now, you know what I'm saying. I I want you to hear what I'm saying, that we know that he wins in the end. But but I want you to follow me in this, that the people are standing around and they're challenging this picture of weakness as Jesus is on the cross. If you're really God, come down from that cross. The irony is that he is God and he could have come down from the cross, but he chose not to. And so here's this, this amazing thought there's something about us as human beings that we're infatuated with power, that we always want to be on the winning side. My son, who's a sports fanatic, he hates bandwagoners. He graduated from Grandbury High School in May, and when he would see somebody with a Patriot shirt or an Alabama Crimson Tide shirt, he'd say, Are you from there? <laughs> None of them were from there. He couldn't understand. Dad, Dad, why are there so many New England Patriot fans and Alabama Crimson Tide fans in our high school in Granberry, Texas? <laughs> I said, Son, of the glory is gone. but God is just the opposite because of his humility God is content with the appearance of weakness so so again this thought what if God always won and again I'm not talking about in the ultimate sense we know God wins in the ultimate sense but what if good always triumphs? What if doing good always paid tremendous dividends? Wouldn't people just flock to God to follow him? Wouldn't he be the ultimate one to which bandwagoners would flock? Because if you've ever noticed our culture, people do things that benefit them personally. So God could win over most of the world simply by displaying his power. But where would that leave people's hearts? Would they follow God because they loved him or because they were afraid of him? Would they follow God because they wanted to be on the winning side? Would they follow God because saying, God, use me is what they desire? Or would they follow God so they could use him? Mm. So, what about the God that we know who appears to be weak? What if it looks like evil wins a whole lot of times when you read the newspaper? Are there more people on the devil's side? What if those who followed Christ were even ridiculed or persecuted? We had Nick Ripken come to our church a couple of weeks ago who wrote The Insanity of God. If you've never read that that book, put that at the top of these two books for sure. Because he talks about the persecuted church in ways that you can't even imagine. In China, where I had a friend as a missionary and he said 1,500 people a month were coming to Christ in illegal house churches. Nick Ripken said the Chinese believers say that prison is their theological seminary. Can you imagine that? So, what about this? What if it's not to our advantage to be a Christian? What then? Well, maybe you know the answer. Because then only the people who truly love God and truly want to follow God would believe in Him. Only those who follow God for who He is. Rather than what they can get out of him. Would dare to be called by his name. What I'm saying is that it doesn't take courage to follow what's popular. It doesn't take courage to follow what is beneficial. It takes courage to follow the truth. When you are mocked for it. The captured Christ. And the captured heart. Are not anomalies. It's exactly how God. Wow. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the privilege of studying your word today in this moment. Lord, I know that we come from many different backgrounds, but I am so thankful that we all recognize who you are. And may in this Easter season, those that we influence, those around us, recognize that you can be our Savior and Lord. So grateful for this organization, Lord, that continues to help us to encourage one another because we tend to be in cultures where following you, Lord, is not so popular. But Lord, we count it a privilege. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.